Well, good evening. Welcome to the house of God. What a glorious heavenly Father we have that he invites us into his presence both morning and evening. Take your Bibles with me, please, and turn to Proverbs 19. Proverbs 19, we'll focus just on one verse primarily, and that's verse 11. Proverbs 19, verse 11. Look what it says there. It says, a man's transgression, excuse me, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook a transgression. Let me read it one more time. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook a transgression. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We, we bless you. We praise you for your kindness to us. We think of men ascending to the Mount Sinai and having broken your law, but they came with the blood of the bull splattered on their faces, and therefore you didn't raise your hand against them, but you fellowshiped with them, and you ate with them, and you drank with them. And we don't deserve, Father, to be in your presence tonight, but we come sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb, and so we ask that you would sit with us and eat with us and drink with us and feed us on the inheritance of our forefather Jacob. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In her biography of Abraham Lincoln, the historian Doris Kearns Goodwin gives an interesting story from the mid-1850s when Lincoln was in the middle of his career in law, and it sheds light on Lincoln's ability to overlook major personal offenses that he absorbed in his life. An important patent case was coming to Chicago, and George Harding, a patent specialist for a distinguished law firm in Philadelphia, employed Abraham Lincoln for this case. And after reviewing and receiving an initial sum of money from the firm, Lincoln got to work on the legal arguments for the case, and Shortly after, the case was then transferred to Cincinnati, and the law firm decided to use Edward Stanton instead as the attorney, but they never informed Lincoln of that change. There were no texting in those days, and as a result, shortly after, Lincoln continued to work on the case for months. And in late September, Lincoln then set out for Cincinnati with his legal brief in hand. And Kearns Goodwin describes his encounter with Stanton and with Harding this way. Arriving at the Burnett House, where all the lawyers were lodged, Lincoln encountered Harding and Stanton as they left for the court. And Lincoln introduced himself and proposed, let's go up in a gang. And at this point, Stanton drew Harding aside and whispered, why did you bring that blankety-blank long-armed ape here? He doesn't know anything, and he can't do you any good. And with that, Stanton and Harding turned from Lincoln and continued to the court on their own. Well, the snubbing went beyond the initial insult. Kearns Goodwin continues, In the days that followed, Stanton managed to make it plain to Lincoln that he was expected to remove himself totally from the case. And Lincoln did withdraw, though he remained in Cincinnati to hear the arguments. Harding 
never opened Lincoln's manuscript, so sure that it would be only trash. So throughout that week, Lincoln ate at the same hotel. Harding and Stanton never asked him to join them for a meal or accompany them to or from court. And when the judge John McLean hosted a dinner for the lawyers on both sides, Lincoln was never invited. And it's no wonder that Lincoln took the humiliating circumstances quite personally. And upon leaving Cincinnati, he wrote to a close friend this, quote, In reply to your request for me to come again, I must say to you, I never expect to be in Cincinnati again. I have nothing against the city, but things have so happened here as to make it undesirable for me to ever return again. And Trevin Wax adds this historically. Now, fast forward six years later, and the next time Lincoln and Stanton shook hands, Lincoln was what? He was the president of the United States. But instead of holding Stanton's obnoxious offense against him, Lincoln offered Stanton the post of Secretary of War. And this was just before the Civil War. Disregarding any resentment of being humiliated by Stanton, Lincoln recognized Stanton's gifts and talents and chose to overlook the offense. And frankly, he made one of the best choices possible for his cabinet, again, Civil War era, And over the years, Stanton and Lincoln proved to be an excellent team as they grew to love each other as dear friends. And it was Stanton who stood by Lincoln's bedside at his death and uttered those famous words, well, now he belongs to the ages. You see, Lincoln's not alone in this, is he? Overlooking transgression, absorbing an offense, because we all find ourselves getting offended, don't we? Like, like frequently, if not even constantly. And the question is, how are we to respond to these offenses? Now, I know it's true. Sure, there are times when it's crystal clear that it may be appropriate for escalating the matter to direct confrontation, when you know it is sin. It's a black and white issue, like a Matthew 18.5. If your brother sins against you, well, then reprove him. And if he will not listen to you, take two or three witnesses. But you know what? When it comes to those bumps and offenses of life, frankly, those black and white issues of crystal clear sin are quite rare. Overwhelmingly, it's offenses of a different nature, like you fired me. Or maybe, you fired my son. And these may be offenses that are really based on differing opinions on disputable matters. That's the way it is so often in life. And in those circumstances, frankly, the godly course of action is given to us in this proverb here. Look what it says there. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. And it's his glory to overlook an offense. Now let's look at this proverb and ponder it under six headings. The first is this. Consider just overlooking a transgression. Overlooking a transgression. Think of how the the passage says in Exodus 33 and 34. Moses, remember, asks to see the Lord's glory. What does the Lord say to Moses there on Sinai? You you can't see my glory and live. 
I am a God of consuming holiness. So what does the Lord do? He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and the Lord's glory passes by. The word passes by is the Hebrew word avar. It, it, it passes over Moses. He's hiding in the cleft of the rock. It does not incinerate Moses. Kind of the angel of death when he comes to the houses in Egypt on that fateful night when the doors of the Hebrews were sprinkled with the blood of the lamb and the angel of death came to kill the firstborn in that house. But seeing the lamb, it what? It passed over the House. There was no visitive justice on the house. The house wasn't run through because of its sinfulness. Justice sheathes its sword and asks no more. It disregards, it overlooks, and leaves unharmed. That's what's in view here. It's a man's glory to overlook an offense. In the late 1700s, there was a man who was offended by a humiliating scoff and insult that he had received publicly. So what did you do back in the 1700s? Well, you challenged that guy to a duel with guns. And his wife cautioned him about this. He responded back, my dear, how could I appear in public again? My public stature is at stake. My community splendor, my glory is at stake. Well, what happened is the man lost the duel. He was actually shot in the shoulder, and the duel brought him shame. And frankly, even if he had won the duel, he'd have been shamed, having shown himself to be a fool who had been soon angry to even propose the duel. What would have brought true glory and true splendor to that man who had been insulted and offended? What would have brought him true stature? You know what it brought true stature? If he'd have walked away from the offense and not tried to visit it with his wrath. He should have passed it over. He should have overlooked it. That's what this passage says. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. And it's his glory. It's his splendor to overlook the wrong. That's the most handsome behavior. Lincoln wasn't a very handsome guy. He had this Marfan syndrome that, well, they said it made him look like an ape. But tell you what, this account of his passing over Stanton's sin made him handsome, a glorious man of the highest character. Derek Kidner, commenting on this proverb, says this, the word glory here means a man's beauty. It's his glory to overlook an offense, suggesting adornment. Kidner says, and so brings out here the glowing colors of virtue, which in practice may look drably unassertive. But God declares his almighty power most chiefly in showing mercy and pity. You think how when Moses beheld the glory of God, how was, how was God most shown to be glorious? Was it that he brought an earthquake at that time? No. It was the uttering of basically the gospel. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, forgiving, the word says, sin and wickedness and rebellion. That displays God in the most spectacular technicolor. He's a God of mercy. You look at that prodigal's father in John chapter 
In Luke chapter 15, when the prodigal comes home, and what does the father do? He hangs on his neck and he weeps, forgiving him. What a glorious, handsome father and God we have who forgives sin. A foolish man may see that compassion is mere sheepishness and meekness and therefore very drab, but they're foolish to think that. Because you think of how when God came, the almighty God came incarnate, what did he come as? As a sheep before the shearers. He opened not his mouth. He came as one who was forgiving sin and overlooking transgression. God in his greatest majesty has his glory displayed by passing over transgression. Lawson says this, It's our duty and wisdom to pass by not only slight offenses, but injuries of a deeper dye, such as may be called transgressions. You know, say, well, I I could forgive someone, okay, they fired my son, but what about one of those major sins? Well, it's interesting how Genesis 50 we read here. Did you read? You did read that, what it said. How there were these crimes that were committed against Joseph. I mean, these weren't peccadillos. Joseph was thrown into a pit. He would have made a slave for 13 years in Egypt. And it says there, the word pesha is that word transgression. Pesha. This was a, a lifetime crime against Joseph. And Joseph passed it by. Joseph forgave it. So we see this text. It's a man's glory to overlook a transgression. First point was overlooking a transgression. But I promise six headings, so we got to move. Come on, secondly, consider with me recognizing hypersensitivity. You know, we live in an eggshell age, and we're overdosing in our day on sensitivity training. Harmless comments are called what? Microaggressions, or they're even called hate speech. There's a climate in our day that conditions all of us to overindulge ourselves with the expectation that the world must treat me with kid gloves. I remember one of our daughters-in-law had an infection in her pinky and we were vacating in Iowa and everybody said, stay away from Sarah because it was a pre- you just touch that pinky and she's going to go hit the roof. And sometimes we can have that kind of hypersensitivity when someone simply bumps us. I read of a woman and she spoke about how we can be easily offended and how important it is that we get over it. She wrote this. A woman had come to her house. This woman was in her kitchen. And the woman glanced into the cupboards and said, I can't believe you let your kids eat toaster pastries They're all sugar. They're all trans fats. And the woman says, she was over for coffee, and she couldn't help peering into my pantry and seeing a box of those toaster pastries. I could feel my hackle starting to rise. What do you do with a woman like that? It's a glory to overlook a transgression. Or what about when you don't get invited to a party that everybody else you know is going to? What do you do with that? You, you overlook a transgression. Or what about your, your boss? He, he commends your coworker in the company meeting, but then he doesn't commend you. 
Or what about when you don't receive a thank you card for the birthday gift that you gave? Oh, you hit the roof on that? What about when your son sits out on the bench the whole baseball game while the coach, his son, plays all seven innings, and then the best friends of that coach's sons play all the innings as well and get all the at-bats. What do you do with that when you're sitting on the bleachers there? You see, it can be so difficult to overlook these elbows that we receive in life. Because what? I feel hurt and upset and insulted and slubbed and slighted and wronged and ignored and mistreated. And we're looking at this issue of recognizing hypersensitivity. How do we deal with a life that's just ubiquitous with these kinds of offenses? And you know, it's possible and probable that you may have, I may have just causes for being offended. But you know, you realize it's wrong for us to always assume that when we're offended, all of these offenses are going to be prosecuted or even that all of these offenses in life are going to be eliminated. Sorry, that's not the way life works. We we can't sanitize the world of offenses and think, that's the only way that I'm going to be able to live peacefully. Instead of trying to treat the world, we should treat ourselves. It's like in the spring. I used to get allergies in June, and I would see these microscopic pictures of pollen. You know what they look like? They're like spike balls, and they're everywhere. And I always, I thought, I got, we got to get rid of the world or treat the world, get rid of those pollen spike balls. And I realized, no, the best thing to do is not to treat the world, is treat myself. Maybe give me myself an antihistamine, huh? Diane said, better off, stop drinking Mountain Dew. And you'd be far better off. And I was, and I was. And so we need to treat ourselves, not with a supplement, well, maybe with the supplement of this passage, the medicine of this passage. We're so easily offended. How do we deal with it? We can't purge the world of the spike balls of offenses. But what we can do is to take the medicine of this passage, that a, a man's discretion makes him slow. To, come on, Mark, take this in. Inhale this, swallow this. Take a handful of them. A man's transgression makes him slow to anger. It's his glory to overlook a transgression. I need to learn how to handle being offended. All kinds of scriptural medicine for this. Even in Ecclesiastes 7.21, it says this. Don't take seriously all the words that are spoken about you, that you'll not hear your servant cursing you, for you realize that you have many times cursed others. Isn't it true that if I feel offended that I, at times, have probably said things that have been offensive to other people. And frankly, I've appreciated when they've overlooked it. And isn't it proper that we would do unto others as we would have them do unto us? You ever have people overlook offenses for you? How appreciative we are of them. Well, we should return the favor. And think of how it says in Ephesians 4.32 that we're to be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And you want leverage? It's Christ has forgiven you. Forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven 
you. I mean, there's leverage that can move the boulders of pride when Lincoln-like we've been offended by a stunt. And this gives Novocaine numbing when we think of Jesus has forgiven me a mountain range of my own sins when a fellow sinner flicks a speck of offense into my eye. So, So we've seen overlooking a transgression. We've seen recognizing hypersensitivity. Thirdly, out of six, consider with me how Loving and technicolor. Loving and technicolor. Just in working with this passage, I was struck hard with the fact that overlooking transgressions and forgiving offenses really is a grand display of the multicolors of love. We're to love each other. Often at weddings, we'll have that love passage in 1 Corinthians 13, how love never fails. And it's true in marriage. We need to be overlooking offenses in marriage, loving one another with those clashes. I, I first preached on this many years ago, and when I first prepared this sermon, I remember on the Saturday night before I preached it, Diane summoned me downstairs for a meal in front of the television. There was a movie that we were going to watch, and she set before me this wonderful meal. There was a steak, and there was a baked potato, and there was a salad. And there was bread and there was drink. And she was arranging all this. But while she was arranging it all, she was standing in front of the television set for 15 seconds, 30 seconds, for, for a minute. She saw, I, could, I couldn't see the television set. And besides that, I thought to myself, she, had, she didn't even consult me about what movie it was that we were going to be watching. And I was kind of offended by her behavior. But what a blockhead. This woman had spread a face before me and I'm offended. She didn't bring me a fork, too, by the way. And I had to go up and get the fork as well. Well, how narrow-minded we can be when we think people offend us. So we need to love each other. Just think of how that passage in 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient. It's an idea in the Old Testament of the long-suffering of God, which literally means God has a very long nose. And his anger that is deep within doesn't vent out because his nose is long suffering. It holds his fury in against sin. Love is patient. Jonathan Edwards says this, God's patient is wonderfully displayed in bearing innumerable injuries from men that are great and long continued. I just think of what the Lord thought of me that night when he saw Diane serving me so kindly and graciously and my sitting with behind her with my hands on my hips, silently complaining, oh, how long-suffering he was not to have the earth open up and swallow me. Love is also not jealous. So that means love isn't resentful when maybe a sibling or a co-worker or a teammate gets favored with, with more compliment or more playing time than I get. Love also, it says in 1 Corinthians 13, seeks not its own. So love is willing to give up what's entitled. Like sometimes we have these offenses against people because because they got the limelight position and I didn't get the limelight position. it, It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle. Well, I want to be the first violinist in the in the 
spotlight. No, no, no. Love seeks not its own. Love is not provoked. In other words, it's not irritable. It's not upsetable. Like Paul in Athens was upset, same word, by the idolatry in Athens. Don't, don't, don't be easily upset. We, we used to have golden retrievers. And our, our first golden retriever was a, a cash cow in the sense that a litter of 12 and a litter of 13, copper. When copper would lay there on all these pups, I'll just say this, not enough teats, not enough teats, but she was so unprovocable. She would just lay there and they would take their claws on her nose and, and it, 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 it didn't bother her. She remained placid. And you may say to me, yeah, but do you know how many times my family members bend my nose in the way that they treat me and the things that they have done to me? You know what I say? Be, be better than copper even. You just love them. Love them. This also says in 1 Corinthians 13, love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Plummer says, when there's no question that you've received an injury, love doesn't register the evil. Love doesn't store up the resentment. Love bears no malice. Love doesn't keep score. There's somebody in my family that I have took note of the fact that this person in my family who, like there's a wedding that goes on, wedding planning, they Talk about elbows that fly when a wedding is planned. Just someone, she doesn't keep score. Someone, in our, she doesn't keep score. Does it quietly, but she doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It's a beautiful thing. Love bears all things. If you're out walking and you're hiking and you're carrying that eight-and-a-half-pound gallon of water. No, nobody else is volunteering to take it mile after mile after mile. Well, I deserve better than this, but, but love bears all things. Love believes all things. What does that mean? Well, that means it thinks the best of another. It means it puts the best construction on something that took place. There, there was a time when, you know, in our church, we would play ultimate Frisbee, and we gathered together at a park on Quincy. I remember one time we were playing. I was wide open in the end zone. And they, 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 they should have passed it to me, but instead of passing it to me, they threw it to this guy in our church instead of me. Now, why? I, I could have put the worst construction on why they threw it at me, but how about putting the best construction on like this? I'm, I'm 5'10". And that guy was 6'5", with a wingspan of an albatross. Who would you throw it to? Come on, Mark, think, think. Put the best construction on this. He didn't necessarily have anything against me in throwing it to someone else. And also love hopes all things. It's like when Barnabas, remember? Barnabas, he became a deserter during the first missionary journey. Uh, that is, uh, John Mark did it, but Barnabas thought the best of John Mark. And Barnabas took John Mark off to Cyprus because he optimistically had a gracious outlook that there would be better things in view for John Mark. And even, even love endures all things. There's that statement that Shakespeare brings that speaks of uh, parents who face breathtaking ingratitude. Does that ever happen, mom and dad, from your children? And Shakespeare says, sharper than a serpent's tooth is an ungrateful child. So what does a parent do? 
It continues to endure in love. So all this proverb is saying, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. It's just saying love on each other. Love on each other in our families, in our marriages, in our churches, in our lives. But come on, they fourthly, cutting others slack. Cutting others slack. I'm just really building here on that multi-dimensional technicolor love of 1 Corinthians 13. Just ponder its multifaceted practical applications. How about this? How sometimes a felt offense that we absorb is really, it's a misinterpretation. There was an advertising agency copywriter who told how she had made French pastries and she brought them to work. And her boss took one bite of the pastry and raved out loud, wow, you're in the wrong field. You should be working in a bakery. This is the best dessert I've ever tasted in my life. And the woman who prepared the pastry thanked him for the compliment, but she was furious inside and she fumed. She thought to herself, six years of college, a master's degree, many awards, but my boss still tells me that I should be baking for a living. No, 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 no. That's a misinterpretation. Often our felt offenses are that. But also, sometimes what seems to be a major offense is simply a reflection of a different personality or upbringing or cultural background or lifestyle. Think of a foreigner who who moved to the U.S. and his new friends thought he was just just too, too blunt, too brash. And it wasn't until the man's family visited the U.S. that his American friends understood that This guy's far more direct than us northern Europeans. But instead, this in-your-face is really a a, a cultural part of his personality that his family views as loving one another when you talk so directly. And I've even discovered myself, if I I travel to like maybe China or Zambia or the, the Philippines, I have an American way of doing things and you know what? I realize I just need to tone it down, Mark, to become all things to all men. So that by all possible means, some may be saved and relationships might be built. And Revelation 7 speaks of our being around the throne with people from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. So we should seek to not be offended or to be offensive. Or, or even think of this. Sometimes an offense grows out of unknown circumstances. He treated me this way. Well, why did he do that? In fact, you go back to the Lincoln history. Abraham Lincoln bore and believed and hoped and endured all things because he considered circumstances of Stanton's life. Stanton's insulting behavior didn't take place in a vacuum. And Abraham Lincoln investigated and learned more about Stanton that in the years before he met Lincoln, Stanton's daughter Lucy Lucy, died of scarlet fever. And then the love of Stanton's life, his wife, she died at age 29. And brokenhearted, 
Stanton buried his wife in her wedding dress, and for months, Stanton roamed around his house sobbing and calling out her name. And then, not long after that, Stanton's younger brother developed a high fever, impairing his brain, leading to an ugly suicide right in front of Stanton's own children. And then, professionally, the patent case in Cincinnati was the biggest case of Stanton's career, And when Harding got sick, Stanton had to stay up all night to prepare. So adding this all together, Lincoln thought to himself, years of sadness and illness and tragedy and a couple of sleepless nights, well, that may well have contributed to Stanton's bad treatment in those days back in Cincinnati. So Stanton was, by Lincoln, cut some slack. And we need to be cutting others slack. That's our fourth main heading. Come to the fifth main heading with me, and that is forgiving unilaterally. We've seen overlooking a transgression, recognizing hypersensitivity, loving in technicolor, cutting others slack. Now, forgiving unilaterally. Now, think with me on this one. Forgiving unilaterally. By that I mean, I think this really calls us to forgive offenders without their confessing to us sin and without their repenting. Hear what I said. We should forgive people on occasions without their confessing sin and without their repenting. Now, I don't know what you're thinking. Come on, Pastor Mark. Luke chapter 13, 17 and verse 1 says that if your brother sins against you, and if he repents, forgive him. I understand that passage. But I also understand that passage referring to those issues of clear, cut, black and white sin. Issues where there's an adulterous affair. Issues of where your partner embezzled multiple thousands of dollars. This is not talking about matters that are Opinion matters, matters that are disputable matters, matters you fired me or you fired my son and I have a resentment against you unless you repent. Well, there are all kinds of issues that are, your opinions are in this and someone else's opinion and we cannot use the requirement that they see it my way or else they haven't repented. Many people use that Luke 17 passage, if your brother sins and if he repents, then forgive him as a club that they beat others with, demanding that they come around to their view and their opinion of every matter. In fact, there's a case that I read of of a woman and a man and a five-year-old daughter who was ill. And the father was dealing with the five-year-old daughter, and the mother claimed, you weren't compassionate with her. You weren't understanding the fever that she had. You sinned against her. You need to repent of your sin. He didn't agree with her. And so she said, until you repent, I will not forgive you. And vice versa, it went. And for 30 years, they slept in separate bedrooms. And for 30 years, they never talked to each other. And they both did it self-righteously, claiming that they haven't repented. So I cannot forgive And you say, well, but God never forgives without repentance. Oh, yes, he does. 
God forgives you of many things that you never confess. He overlooks transgressions in us, things that we never repent of continuously, daily. Due to our ignorance, we sin, don't we? Kevin gave a prayer from the Valley of Vision. You read that Valley of Vision, there are so many sins that we are ignorant of that God forgives. Psalm 130 and verse 3, If the Lord would mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. Or Psalm 40 and verse 12, My iniquity has overtaken me so that I cannot see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head. And I don't confess all those numerous sins, but God has mercy on me. He forgives me, like it says in Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me. Transgressions of thought and word and deed. He forgives me. Like the Lord Jesus says in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There are people who have sinned against us. Maybe, yeah, they have sinned, but they don't, they don't see it the way. They don't even know what they do. But there is an element of the request for forgiveness. That Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so should you forgive them. But they haven't repented yet. Oh, my. The Lord Jesus and his forgiveness should be leveraged to remove the boulders of our pride. And whether it's a, whether it's a clash or relational fallout, and you feel you're the violated one, you're the victim, you know what? You and I, we can still be the peacemaker by forgiving, even confessing. Listen to this account. woman writes, Once I had a roommate, and she made my life miserable. Her behavior and speech made me feel that she hated the world and me. My stomach would be in knots while I lived with her. I'd, I'd go to the gym just to get out of her presence. So much tension there was in our apartment. I burned a ton of calories. But if I was honest, I knew I was handling things poorly too. And I gave into the avoidance pattern. And, and I was developing a lot of bitterness inside toward her. And when our lease was up and it was time for us to move out, I was so excited that I'd never have to live with her again. I even took a picture of her empty room. Then a few years passed, and I rarely thought about her, except I'm so thankful to be free of her. But in prayer, God, God began to bring my old roommate back to mind, and I knew there was something very displeasing. And I thought, but, but she, she's the one. She's the one who needs the forgiveness. And after months of resisting, I finally wrote and asked for her forgiveness over the ways that I'd sinned against her. And to my surprise, she quickly responded with grace and ended up saying that, that she should be the one asking for forgiveness. The account goes on. Months later, she asked if we could talk. She needed counsel while going through a tough situation. And after I hung up the phone, I thought, now that's the power of reconciliation. Before pursuing peace with her, I'd have not been able even to look at her in the eye if I ran into her somewhere. But after the peacemaking, a weight was taken off my shoulder and doors for ministry were opened up. You know, 
What about you? Could, could it be that the Lord, while you're sitting in this burgundy chair, is talking to you, talking to me about someone or about someones that we need to just let it go? Just let it go. Just bury it. And that's our sixth and final point. Having seen forgiving unilaterally, the final and sixth point is letting go of grudges. Look at that text. A man's transgression makes him slow to anger. And it's his glory to overlook, to pass by an offense. You know, there are people, maybe even sitting in this room, there are people who refuse to even talk with extended family members. People who, if a hand was extended, wouldn't even shake the hand. There can be a a subtle feud with people in in, in a company. Could Could it be even people in a church, people in a family? Is is there coolness and distance even among us, Lord? Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any sinful way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. One man has written this, grudges are easier to hold than forgiveness is to hand out. But if we hold those grudges, those things are corrosive on the inside. We hold those grudges that's toxic. You think of what it says in Proverbs 14, 30. It says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but passions rot the bones. And it's holding these grudges that will be like, a, like acid, that corrosive tearing apart on the inside, the bones being rotted. Not only is it harm to us, it's also a stench to God. You think of that parable in Matthew 18, the unforgiving servant who was forgiven a fortune of sin, but then he, he throttles his neighbor who owes him $5 and throws him into prison and holds him there? Are there people that we're holding in the prison of our grudge and God sees it all? We, we've got to examine ourselves. Kevin even spoke about the brevity of life, right? Our lives are so brief. We're going to answer to God. When we answer to God, Romans 12 says, As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. We're going to meet a God, and we want to be like a God who who forgives and doesn't, it says in Psalm 103.9. The Lord forgives and doesn't keep his anger. Well, why are we keeping our anger? We should be like God. Plummer says this, wicked men and devils carry grudges. But God and good men, imitating his example, don't. May God search us in this. We come to the house of God. We have dealings with the Lord. But is there something that we need to bury, examine, consider? There's an account of Robert E. Lee, the the southern general. He was a very good man. He was a very godly man. Sure, his cause, there were issues that are questionable. I got that. I understand that. Robert Lee was a good and godly man, in many ways a product of his time, like we're all products of our time. Anyway, Robert A. Lee visited a Kentucky woman. And after dinner, she brought Lee out to the front yard, and she showed 
generally the shattered grand old oak tree in front of her house. Again, this was after the war. And she bitterly complained about the federal cannon fire that recklessly destroyed her grand oak tree. And she hoped that, that Lee would curse the North as well. And Robert E. Lee listened to it all. He, in silence, he put his head down and he said, after a pause, ma'am, cut it down. Ma'am, cut it down and forget it. And for some of us who have been raging in the front yards of our lives, there are things that we should cut it down. And just, just, just bury it. Bury that offense. Take the medicine. Maybe write, we, you don't even have to write the letter like the woman wrote the letter. There are some offenses you can just bury it right now, done with it. No, you don't even have to tell the person what you held in the heart. That's, that can be somewhat self-serving. It wasn't public. Don't make it public. If it is public, go public. But the idea of burying grudges that we have. You know, who could blame Abraham Lincoln for holding a grudge against Stanton? But, you know, historically, without Stanton's military brilliance, the Civil War may have ended up in a totally different way. But for Lincoln, it was his glory to overlook an offense. And may, may the Lord search us. And may it be that our, trans, our, our discretion would make us slow to anger and that we would be willing to overlook transgressions. May the Lord help us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that we wouldn't take you or your word in vain. And so we do ask that you would be the searcher of our hearts. And we pray that we would, even as we're sitting here, make a resolution that we would overlook transgressions. Maybe there's a real serious grudge or two that we need to bury. We want to be able to meet with you when we breathe our last and to say that as far as it has depended on us, we've lived at peace with all men. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.